Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the DealMaker Show. So today we're going to be learning a ton about digital media and entertainment. So I guess without further ado, I want to welcome our guest today, Philippe Von Boris from Refinery29. Welcome to the show today. Thank you very much. So originally from Cologne, I think we're going to get the battle of accents here on the episode today. So how was life growing up there? <laughs> Life growing up in Germany was uh, was it was okay. It's pretty short. I came here. I came to the states when I was uh, 16 years old. I uh, I landed at a school at a high school as a exchange student um, as a teenager. I think I, I think I knew that somehow I was actually meant to have been born in the states and uh, and somehow finagled my way to you know go to a, a boarding school in Massachusetts called Concord Academy when I was uh, 16. And yeah, I, uh, I never really looked back. If, if I've lived in the States ever since. So did you always wanted to come here or was it just like something that your parents, you know, suggested? No, my parents didn't, my parents didn't suggest it at all. I think they wished that I, uh, that I was in Germany. Uh, <laughs> my parents live in Germany. I, I think it would, there was something about, I was drawn to the States. I mean, through movies and pop culture and everything else. Right. I think my family took me to a couple of trips to to New York uh, when I was really young, and I, I knew that I needed to be in the states. I think there was something about you about even I, I don't think I had any sense of entrepreneurship when I was at that age, but the creativity and the you know somewhat sort of stereotypical uh, opportunity, but it's true, um, was there, and I felt it, and I knew early on that I needed to be in the states to sort of you know become the person that I am. Really cool. And then you went to Columbia here in New York. So uh, what did you study there? Yeah, so I uh, I, I lived in uh, New York during college. I went to Columbia. I studied history. Um, I was, you know, really into politics and international affairs. Um, really saw that as my path. Um, I worked for a amazing professor who actually has a weekly column in the Financial Times called Simon Chama during my off hours. And um, yeah, and I moved down to DC after, um, after I graduated Columbia to work at an international affairs startup called The Globalist back in 2004, 2005, very different, actually probably like 2003, very different era in terms of building brands and, and monetization. 
and sort of got my start in uh, in the space, but had had really come um, uh, you know sort of of you know of age and built my my circle of friends and acquaintances with sort of a lot of people that had gone into different creative spaces, launching businesses from you know music to fashion. And you know, DC is is all about one thing. Uh, it's you know, it's it's politics, and 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 while that was really interesting to me, I was missing the sort of creative edge, and I knew deep down too that you know I was on a path to create something. And I uh, I moved back to New York, and soon thereafter, the story of Refinery Twenty Nine began. Got it. And and all you've known is is startups. So so why <laughs> after Columbia? I mean, where you see all these people going into consulting and Finance. investment banking and 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 look, we're we're talking about the early two thousands, right? So it's a, it's like the startup ecosystem wasn't even as mature as it is today. I mean, you you knew that in Silicon Valley, but not like the Silicon Alley here, for example, that we see in New York today. So so what? How did you come up with the idea of hey, I'm gonna go to a startup? I mean, I didn't even go to a startup, right? I created the startup, so I. But, uh, but I mean, this, this political startup in DC. Oh, I mean, oh, you, okay, you yeah, no. Um, I mean, that was um, that was really the uh, the result mo- more than anything of being drawn into the world of um, you know, of media of media of journalism um, of early sort of online startup culture and something about it just just felt right. I you know I I I just knew that I wanted to play a role there. And yeah, the days were definitely very different. I mean, this was when most people, like you said, were heading into consulting and finance, and it wasn't like you know everybody was pursuing you know uh, tech jobs, particularly after you know what had happened a couple of years a couple of years prior. Um, but we saw I saw an opportunity, and you know, in the content space and the in the media space, and I think that's what drew me in. So let's talk about the opportunity. So so you created Refinery Twenty Nine. So so how did the idea come about? How did you come up with uh, with meeting Justin and and Piera and 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 Kristen as well? Like how 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 did the idea all come together? Yeah. So like you said, there's there's four people who found a refinery, and you know the four people are still together. It's it's a pretty remarkable story. Last year I went on stage at an event introducing the four of us, and I said the band is still together. I think a lot of the, you know, a lot of the success is in the partnership that we've had. Um, and for full disclosure, Piera is, is my wife and, uh, we nice. were, we were, uh, together and dating at the time we found a refinery and that soon thereafter I got married. But the story of refinery began in 2005. We're all living in New York, you know, starting off in our mid twenties and, you know, the initial idea was really about curating and uh, building a platform to discover really cool independent brands and boutiques in different cities around the world um, and creating a lot of sort of sidebar content around that. And I should really qualify that the initial idea was probably only appealing to to sort of, you know, really to a subgenre of people. This was sort of, you know, it was about highlighting you know, again, people who are not in the mainstream. And that was really powerful. It also meant that the business grew really slowly, but it had a really authentic core to it. You know, we were, um, you, you, we were promoting and writing about people and telling stories about people who were just starting out and creating their own businesses and their own brands. You know, I'm not sure how much these names will resonate. Um, for, for this audience here, but even in the fashion world, you know, brands like Rag and Bone um, had just started out. I remember, you know, going to their um, 
you know, midtown uh, office, uh, you know, overlooking, um, overlooking a park and, you know, and them just being the two of them in their office. And it was all of these different brands that were popping up um, at that time, starting something new. And we were sort of putting them in the spotlight and creating something really valuable. And it was a really interesting mix between content and service and tools and discovery. And that set us in motion and that gave us liftoff and, you know, and, and thereby started the story of Refinery29. Really nice. So how did you guys divide the responsibilities? Because four co-founders, obviously, uh, that's probably what I would say is the limit. If you go over that, it's a, it gets a little bit crazy in terms of managing egos. But uh, how did you guys divide and conquer in terms of responsibilities? Yeah, I mean, it, it was pretty straightforward. So um, Pierre and Christina had actually worked together um, in a previous world in the in the um, magazine world, and so you know, Christine took over all you know all content editorial. Pierre took over all visual design, um, which is a signature of the business even today. Um, my business partner Justin really looked at the you know the at sales and monetization world and I really focused on you know on, on fundraising and and marketing and the overall product mix and that was the and that was the you know initial initial uh, division of labor but it was pretty organic you know we remember our first office was in a capoeira studio on Leonard Street in Tribeca two basements down where there would be a ray of sunlight between 12 and 12:15 every afternoon and, uh, you know, we built a really small team and this is before, you know, the distribution mechanisms of growing audience or monetization, uh, was in place, you know, the, like the digital app sales ecosystem was barely existent, you know, all the money was flowing to Yahoo and, you know, banner media. And so we, you know, we build it very, very organically We'd host events locally in New York at different stores and boutiques. We'd sign people up and get their email addresses literally on a clipboard. I mean, this was as manual as you can imagine, but it really had a, um, it really had a, a root in, you know, in being sort of very authentic. People were, um, I think identifying the right people were identifying themselves with the tone and the mission of, of refinery early on in that we build a lot of word of mouth and street cred, you know, very, very quickly, you know, particularly, you know, it's interesting, you know, refinery today is a media and entertainment company really focused on women. And we didn't engineer that. We didn't, as you can probably imagine from me telling the story, we didn't set out to just go about and create, you know, a next generation media and entertainment brand for, for women, you know, the story was different and women became the audience because they chose themselves. And I think we were writing about things and covering things in a, in a, in a way in which, you know, we weren't mirroring the sort of traditional media world of, you know, particularly, I guess, women's media that was telling you how you should live your life and what you should put on your face and how you should, you know, um, and, you know, dating tips or beauty tips or whatever it might be. It was sort of very democratic and, um, and much more open. And that gave us sort of license and it had a very, very different appeal than anything else that was out there. So then how did you guys started to, um, to make some money out of this? Like what was the, what was the, yeah, it was actually very, it was a very interesting story. So, um, we, so we were focused on all of these very indie brands. And the first business model was actually a marketplace. Um, so the uh, e-commerce world was more promising uh, at that point than the advertising world for us. 
until we build out a marketplace, I guess similar to what Farfetch is today. We had a marketplace, actually Refinery, the name came about because we created a digital mall called the Refinery, where each floor housed 29 different boutiques and brands um, in different categories. And that digital mall was the, you know, initial, uh, became the initial business model by basically networking all of these independent stores together. And then you could shop them with, you know, one unified checkout. And that was pretty advanced for the time. And we started to make some good money, but for anyone who's in the marketplace world, you really need to have massive scale because otherwise, you know, it's a third party model and the margins aren't particularly great. But like I said earlier, the, the thing developed a lot of street cred and people were writing about it and talking about it and saying, this is a really interesting model, basically bringing cool, independent, local brands, you know, to an online destination and making them universally discoverable. And so one day, a big brand that shall go unnamed called us and said, hey, we want to be on your map on your, in your mall. And we said, no, there's no way. You're a big brand. You're too mass. We're all about indie. And they said, well, how about we give you, you know, $100,000? And, you know, and, and we said, that's amazing. That was the most amount of money somebody had ever offered us. And, and we turned it into a pop-up shop because we said, hey, this is still all about independent brands. And it's all about the sort of indie cred. And we're going we're gonna to build you basically a branded pop-up shop. And that was our first foray into you know, what sort of very organically would become over time branded content, branded entertainment, and thereby we birth our advertising business. Very nice. Very nice. So then, so then what were some of those, uh, I would say, early days and the challenges that you guys were encountering as you were pushing forward? I mean, there were so, <laughs> there were so name many. Name a few, because I know every day is full of fires, but I guess if you had to name like the most meaningful ones, which ones would those be? Would those be? I mean, I think the early, um, you know, the early challenges were definitely in, you know, in fundraising, uh, you know, this, that, that whole ecosystem wasn't really built out in New York. Um, you know, I think the, the only really major significant venture fund out there was Union Square Ventures. Like there was really nothing else out there. So to even like build our own network. Yeah. Um, because this uh, was 2010 when you started fundraising or, or when was this when you started getting out there for money? Yeah, probably like 2000, 2006 or so. Oh, 2006. So it was even um, earlier. Yeah, okay. it, was, it was early. And, um, you know, it's like we basically had to build our own network of, uh, you know, of people with, with, with money to invest, you know, so how did you do that? Um, how do we do that? We met, um, we met one entrepreneur uh, in New York, um, who actually set in motion uh, a network of people who pretty quickly all came about. Um, and wanted to invest in the business, but that was probably after meeting like, you know, 25 or 35 people. But that one person was almost sort of like, he was like a, um, uh, you know, he was a, 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 a critical connection at that point for us to open up an entire universe of, of new connections. So that was, um, that was really, really key. Um, so I'd say the, the fundraising was probably one, um, and just, you know, I, I guess you know, teaching ourselves the ropes, you know, I mean, uh, again, different time, different era. Um, you know, we had, we hadn't been serial entrepreneurs. It was our first go around. 
um, you know, specifically making our, like, you know, creating with Justin our first media plan ever for our first ad campaign. Um, the universe, the, the marketplace in, in, you know, in our category was just a lot less mature. And so we had to um, sort of one step in front of the other, um, learning the ropes. Because from a fundraising perspective, how much capital have you guys raised to date? To date, we've raised about $110 million. 110. So how would you say that, let's say, the, um, the financing milestones and the progress from milestone to milestone has been for you guys? I mean, it's been a, um, you know, if you looked at a chart over time starting since 2005, you know, we started sort of really, really, really slow. I mean, probably took us like four or five years to get to, you know, a million dollars or two million dollars in revenue. And I think were it not for the fact that we're in our, you know, mid twenties that, uh, you know, I think you could have easily said, you know, let's throw in the towel. This is not going to work out. Um, but you know, we're pretty young the risk was pretty low and we're doing something that we really loved. And, you know, the great thing about media is that, you know, it's, it's, it's one of the most, you know, you know, interesting and fast moving and intellectually, uh, you know, compelling, you know, categories to be in. And so, you know, it started to eventually accelerate. And then, you know, with our first series A, and the expansion into branded content, entertainment, and, you know, and basically, you know, the sort of full um, power of a finally as a marketing platform, our revenue started to really accelerate. And then, you know, series B and C, things really came about pretty quickly thereafter, very organically, and we didn't really have to seek it out um, all the way through to, to our, you know, our last financing. So it, uh, you know, like, like everything in life, it sort of had a, uh, a a relatively slow start and then you know started to accelerate over time of course and great investors by the way so you have faith for the people that are listening first round Lehrer, floodgate stripes group so even hers communication so so what was the process really like to 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 meeting these guys and and closing them it was all really really organic um you know i i i think our series a was probably the hardest it took the most amount of time um you know, it's also interesting that, you know, I, I tell the story often, we were a women's focused company and, um, you know, we've, we've written plenty about, you know, female funded businesses and the still tiny percentage of VC funded, uh, you know, um, women owned businesses, relatively speaking. Um, and I think even for us pitching a business that was women's focused, even as men, um, you know, was, uh, was was more was more challenging and so you know it took people a while to sort of fully appreciate the opportunity and what we we're doing and then you know um after we locked in our our series a with with floodgate which was one of our big partners at the time you know things started to set in motion and then with our series c uh we had stripes group come on board and that was when you know we had it's actually a good lesson because we had met them two years earlier and you know the business was too small for them to invest and by that time, we had really um, proven out our model and, you know, the projections that I think we'd taken them through a couple of years earlier, we'd sort of, uh, you know, squarely beaten. And they came back to us and it was became a very organic um, process from there on out. And, uh, and, and, it, and it was so with future investors as well, with WPP later and um, with Scripps and with Turner, um, people that we met along the way. And, uh, and build very organic relationships with. And, you know, as we're sort of bringing people up to speed in the progress in our business, 
you know, new opportunities would present themselves. Very nice. I mean, the other thing that I was being present to as you were speaking is that educating these investors probably was 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 a, a really major one because unfortunately the uh, where things are coming from from a history perspective right the vc has been uh, labeled as a boys club so yep. obviously since you were like targeting and and you had this segment of customers you were trying to speak to those investors but they had no clue because it was not the target audience for something like this so i'm sure that was difficult oh no a hundred percent i mean even we would get the line very often that an investor would say oh, let me you know let me ask my wife about this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, wow, like, wow. I mean, we heard that many times early on. But I should also say that the people who backed Refinery along the way, we found some of the most, you know, you know, powerful and amazing women, obviously, in the space. Um, and I think the, you know, the whole, you know, financial universe has obviously um, seen a lot more, um, you know, powerful women who've set up funds and who've become investors over the last five, six years. But again. Uh, you know, in mid 2000s, it was a lot, there was a lot less of them. Um, but even then we found some really um, amazing, uh, you know, funds that had female partners like Anne Muir Co at Floodgate, who early on, you know, saw the opportunity in the business. Um, and another amazing woman, Chandler Fisher. And, uh, you know, and it's always been, um, you know, that's always been part of our story. You know, ultimately, you know, the people who uh, understood what we we're, what we we're doing and, you know, in the lives of, uh, of women, um, as, you know, as investors, as female investors also were sort of quickly identified with the business and what, you know, Christine, Pierre, Justin and myself were after. And so that was always a critical part of the story. That's amazing. And look, I think that uh, times are changing now and I'm actually thrilled that that's the case. I have three daughters myself. So, um, so it's, it's just, uh, we're at the right time in history for, for women. And I love it. So I'm I'm glad that my girls are going to be able to live in a in a different world, no? And I'm, and we're seeing great great female investors now, great female founders, and it's just incredible. So so I'm, I guess I'm now, that. yeah. So I guess I guess the uh, shifting gears a little bit here. Uh, what was you know because you were talking about before like more at the Series A level, for example, there were times that that you really felt like like throwing the towel. So. So make us insiders into, because we all know, look, that entrepreneurship is not such thing as a straight line. And, and there's really tough moments uh, in, in the journey. So, so what was one, for example, of those uh, moments where that was kind of dark and what was the breakthrough out of it? <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a great question. I mean, I remember specifically a moment where we're raising our seed round. We had somebody who is... Um, who we're spending a lot of time with, a serial entrepreneur who has had many successful exits, who committed himself to basically be the lead, and uh, and who brought in a bunch of other um, you know investors to ride on his coattails and invest in the business, and um, and literally a day before we we're supposed to sign, he went dark, wow. and he just disappeared. And it wasn't until we literally saw him at a restaurant like four years later that we ever oh saw God. his face again. <laughs> Did you throw a cake at him or her? Uh, you know, I, that's, it's never, that's never been my vibe. I, uh, okay. you know, I, 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 you know, I always, I don't know what, I don't know what happened to him. You know, he, but you, can, you can only make assumptions. By the way, all the people that, that are in his universe uh, inv ended up investing in the business. But it was one of those moments where you're like, Wait, this is crazy. We've just spent the last like three months wooing this person. We've gone through every model. Um, 
we were ready to go. And by the way, he was sort of the lead and he disappeared. Um, and, you know, there's moments like that where you're just like, well, this is crazy. Like, why, you know, why am I doing this? But so what did I, you do? I mean, I, I've had many, many people that, for example, were in a situation like that. And in many instances, it's like very um, challenging because the entrepreneur makes the mistake of increasing burn rate because they, they're counting on that money to come in potentially. So so how was that? How did that impact you guys and how did you recover from it? I mean, you know, the, I mean, first of all, it's one of those things where you're like, well, I, you know, I, I thought I had this thing like ready to go. And then you sort of like reset and you go back to like, you know, square one. Um, I think, you know, we, you know, you recover from it by realizing that you, you know, you got this far in the first place and what you're doing clearly is resonating with the audience. I mean, that was the most important thing. Right. And, and that's the thing that's always kept us going. I mean, even at this point, you know, um, we're in a place right now in, in media and, you know, sort of entertainment where it's a more challenging time, but we have one of the most significant and influential brands in the space. We've built up the largest audience, um, across the board with more engagement. We're working together with, you know, with incredible people from, you know, from creators to actors, to filmmakers, to brands. And, and it's, and it's that that keeps, you know, keeps you committed to what you're doing. And, you know, for us, it really has been about the sort of, you know, the larger, um, mission that we would do in our, in the lives of our audiences, that, that really is the thing that, you know, that ultimately makes you, makes you push through. And I think even at that time it did. And, you know, at that time we're, the business was still so small that there was not even much to adjust in terms of burn rate. It was probably like lowering our salaries from like <laughs> $45,000 to $40,000. Right. <laughs> <laughs> So, so there was so little, there was so little to lose at that time. The stakes obviously get higher as you, as you go along. Um, yeah. but I think it's the, um, you know, it was the commitment to, 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 to what we're doing. Got it. Got it. So basically going from ramen to a starvation for a couple of days. Yeah, so, exactly. Uh, you, you survive. <laughs> that's it. That's it. As long as you have the drive and the customer is there, you just got to keep pushing. So, yeah. so I guess uh, here, Philippe, the, um, I guess for you guys, how, how big is the company today? So today the company, um, in terms of headcount, we're about a little over 400 people in, um, in offices in New York, which is our headquarter, obviously, in LA and in New York. Um, uh, sorry, and in London, Berlin. Um, you know, company is, you know, north of $100 million in revenue. And, um, you know, the way we speak about ourselves today is, you know, as a, as a media entertainment brand focused on, on women, um, with, you know, uh, several businesses that really stretch across, um, you know, our sort of core, core media and advertising business, um, including our live events business, our studio and originals business, which is, you know, creating long form programming, um, and our, you know, our international business as well, which is um, a critical part of our growth story now. And I also saw that, that you guys had the co-founder and co-CEO structure. So I wanted to ask you, how did that structure work out for you guys? And then also how has the roles of the co-founders evolved as the company was getting up to like north of 100 million and over 400 employees? 
Yeah, I mean, first, like, you know, enormous shout out, shout out to Christine and Piera, who, um, you know, who are much more the sort of, you know, audience, the face of the audience. Um, you know, both of them have built up, you know, big public profiles and personalities. And it's an incredibly important testament for us to, you know, to have, um, you know, a connection to the audience that is also mirrored by the, by the people who we founded the business with. Um, and, um, you know, for, as for Justin and myself, yes, we're co-CEOs in the business. Justin has always taken a little bit more of a, you know, of a focus on leadership on the, on the ad sales side of the, of the business and the finance side of the business. And, um, you know, with me always a little bit more on the, on the product marketing content side, but we have an incredible collaborative relationship. We've known each other for, you know, 20, 20 years. Um, you know, we, we, we spend an incredible amount of time together and, you know, we're very, very aligned in the way that we look at the business and the decisions that we make, <clears throat> you know, with a good bit of debate, but, um, I don't think we've ever sort of had an argument at night and woke up the next morning and not talking to each other that's in, in 20 years. And I think that's a testament to, to how it's worked. So, you know, it's, it's worked for us. It probably doesn't work for everybody. Um, but I, um, I, you know, I, I, I think the company is better for it. And I think that the uh, perhaps communication has been a critical factor in making that happen. So, so how, how do the two of you embrace communication? Oh my God. I mean, it's such an important point, even that, I mean, that, I mean, at the simplest level, you can't let anything, um, simmer and, or fester, you know, I think it's the biggest, it's the, one of the biggest learnings to me. Um, I think even, even now I notice it's funny, I've read an article today on recode that, you know, Slack while sort of deemed to be a great tool of productivity, um, is also, getting away from people actually having, you know, conversations and solving problems in real time. And, you know, Justin and I talk through everything and anything that comes up in that moment. And we'll try to get to a resolution. Um, and I mean, speaking on the phone, picking up the phone, um, and that, it, that also, you know, extends to any one of our direct reports. I think the, you know, the, the, the direct seeking out of people, um, in the real world on the phone or in person, it's just such a critical driver. And it's, and it's somehow remarkable how, how easy and how forgotten that sometimes is. Absolutely. And I guess uh, talking about Justin here and, and your guys' relationship, what has been a major breakthrough that has happened, you know, between the, you, between the two of you guys that has taken that relationship to a whole nother level, if you're willing to share? Um, oh, that's such a big question. Um, a major, perhaps there was an event or a moment that really, really got you guys closer and really made that relationship be magical on a whole nother level. Wow. What a good question. Um, I, I, you know, I, it's hard for me to pin down one, one moment. I think there's just, I think there's just a ton of respect across the board. And, you know, and if you're an entrepreneur, it can be tricky at times, right? You're, you, you sometimes feel the weight of the world on your shoulders and, you know, and I think it's important to have a partnership where, um, you can be there for one another. And, 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 you know, if someone is a little bit more in a funk than the other person to lift, to lift you out of that too, I think it's a critical, it's a critical responsibility. And, um, and I think it's probably one of the strongest parts of, you know, of our partnership, even across the, the four of us, but I think for Justin and, and, and myself, um, 
I, you know, I, I think that's, it's just one of the most critical things you can do. Absolutely. And what about the communication with your wife? You guys working together. I've heard that you even go to the office an hour earlier, earlier than her. Is that right? So that you guys don't do the commute? No, that, that was like maybe a few years ago. Now we had a kid. Now it's uh, everything, okay. everything has changed. No, the relationship with Piera, um, you know, is, is actually probably one of the most, you know, significant aspects of, you know, of my own journey as an entrepreneur, as a leader, as a creative person. Uh, you know, Piera is a, is a, is a, is a, is a force of nature, um, in an outspoken, um, you know, champion for, for women and, um, obviously a great creative leader. And I think we, we have a unique relationship. It's not easy to, you know, to have four founders and work together. It's not easy to have a, you know, co-CEO and we, by the way, work in the same room. Um, but particularly working with your life partner is a whole nother dimension. And for us, it's, you know, it's worked out incredibly. Like we both support and help each other out in different ways. You know, if, you know, I am putting together a, you know, um, I don't know, a, a communication, something to, to the company. And, um, I want her input, um, in, in ways that she can make the story come to life and get her thoughts. And, uh, you know, and if there's something where she needs my input to help, uh, I don't know, it, apply a, a, a layer of, I don't know, organization on a top of a lot of creative ideas. She seeks out my, my ideas. So it's, uh, it's, it's amazing. But now we have a little bit less time in the mornings. Now that we have a baby, um, running ideas one by one another, I realize that when you have a, when you have a kid, you're, you, you, you're lucky if you have like a third of an email draft finished by the time you leave the house. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. You know, it's funny because the last business I also built it, the, Build it with my wife and, you, uh, you know, yeah. So I, I know the drill. I know exactly how it is and the journey. So, um, so really cool. And, you know, the, the, the cool thing, I mean, we have kids now, but, you know, I, I tell the joke to my wife that, that now that we have kids, they're also like startups, but there's no exit and you only break even when they let you sleep at night. Wait, so you only what? And you only break even when they let you sleep at night. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. That's it. So let me ask you this. Um, <clears throat> let me ask you this, Philip. Where do you see the media space heading? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's. This is one of the most. It's. It's one of the most interesting times that's ever existed in the in the in the space all around. I mean, if you look at just what's happening right now at the sort of upper echelon of all the large traditional media companies that are launching direct to consumer offerings from, you know, Disney to Warner to, you know, to NBC. Um, it's probably one of the most interesting moments ever over the next 12 months as a lot of the, you know, buildup over the last 10 years with people, you know, you know, uh, seeing the end of the bundle coming is actually happening. And, you know, I was out in LA last week and we're meeting with a lot of the different comp content companies and it, there's an arms race right now in the space. And it's probably one of the greatest times to ever be, be in it at the same time, you know, it's a, it's a challenging time also because you're, um, you're, you're, you're dealing with a business model, um, that has traditionally been at least one of the legs of the stools advertising that is, you know, is a more challenged space with, you know, with the platform still taking the majority of the growth. And, um, you know, that, that means that the focus is on for, um, you know, for businesses in, in, in the space to build diversified revenue streams, you know, with, 
you know, probably a 50-50 distribution between advertising and direct-to-consumer revenue streams. You know, we're, we're now at about 70-30, which is a huge progression from, you know, from where we were um, even just a few years ago when the business was, you know, north of 90% an advertising business. And that's the result of things like our live events business, where we sold over 100,000 tickets last year, and our originals business, where we're selling content to, um, to a lot of the you know, streaming services or networks. And so that's the big challenge here. And it is only going to, um, you can only be successful with it if you have a great brand, if you know exactly what you stand for, um, if you have an audience that cares, that tunes in, that shows up in the real world. And so for us right now, this is a moment about, um, you know, continuing to show up for our audience, build a great, um, uh, you know, efficient and, and, and profitable business and make sure that our, you know, journey of diversification, which is, you know, which is off to an amazingly successful start over the last few years is, is sort of really going to come all, all the way, all the way full circle. Really cool. Showing up. Nothing like showing up. And I think that community is king. So I'm, I'm right there with you. I think that if you guys continue to show up and, and to really deliver value like you guys have been doing, you know, I'm sure that, you know, you'll find the way. So, so I guess uh, in a world, Philippe, where the vision of Refinery29 is fully realized, what does that world look like? Um, well, we say that that world looks like that people can reach their infinite potential. That's our own vision. Uh, you know, the mission of Refinery um, is to be a catalyst for women to feel, see, and claim their power. Um, I think, you know, certainly uh, this this notion of of equality is a significant one. Um, that's the, you know, those are the underlying principles. And, you know, even if you look at some of the latest stats, we're still a while off from that. So for us, it means making impact and continuing to make impact in a big way. You know, if that's, changing the narrative um, in, you know, in, in Hollywood, where we created a film fund called Shadowbox to advance um, the percentage of female filmmakers, um, you know, all the way to um, changing the representation of, you know, of, of women in media and advertising. Those are the, the core sort of beliefs that we have on the, on the brand side. And on the business side, it's what I spoke about earlier. It's, it means you know, having a great diversified portfolio of revenue streams. And that's the, you know, that's the, that's, I guess, when the, the full success would be, would be realized. Really cool. So one, one of the questions that I typically ask the guests that, um, that come to the show is, if you had the opportunity, Philippe, to speak with your younger self and give yourself one, one piece of business advice, what would that be and why before launching a business? I mean, my, my advice has been very consistent. It's, it's been, a, it's been to be extremely open with what you don't know and very honest about that with other people. I think generally people like to give advice and to help and it's always served us well. Um, I also, I also think that it's, you know, no, no crisis is as big as you think it is. Um, it's, you know, it's life and it all needs to be seen in perspective. And sometimes we, you know, we, you know, tend to tend to think that things are sort of all consuming when when they're not. And, you know, the way you show up and the perspective that you have 
and the you know kindness that you give yourself also um, comes back in spades when it comes to to your own success. Very interesting. And, and to follow up on that, Philippe, if they, let's say if there's a major crisis that is happening and and a really big important decision needs to be made, what's the uh, what's that decision process or, or or what happens right immediately to to taking that decision that the, the, the steps that you actually take in order to make that decision? I mean, to to me, it's um, you know I we we're, we have an extremely um, important relationship with you know with our executive team and our direct reports, um, you know, where transparency is, is absolutely key. Obviously trust is absolutely key. Um, you know, I usually like to hear from people and get a sense of, um, people's opinions very quickly and, uh, and then make a decision. Um, but to me, it's always really important to get, you know, to get sort of the full spectrum of perspectives and opinions and then base our decision on that. So, that's usually how it works. I love it. So for the folks that are listening, Philippe, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, reach out on Instagram. That's my preferred preferred place. Phil Berticus is the uh, is the handle. Amazing. Amazing. All righty. Well, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today, Philippe. Thank you. This is great. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to AlejandroCremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.